It's good to see all of you here on this bright and cheery, <laughs> gloomy New Year's Eve day, And uh, but we're glad that you're here with us worshiping together and jumping back into our sermon series that we've been uh, on a hiatus for during the Christmas season. Now we're going to jump back in to 1 Corinthians in just a moment. So take those Bibles out and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll be looking at the first nine verses this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 9. The gift of singleness and marriage is uh, where we're at. We uh, have looked at four of ten issues that this church in Corinth had been dealing with and that Paul had been uh, saying, hey, there's some things that we've got to fix out there. Uh, first of all, we had dealt with the divide that was happening over church leaders and need to be following Christ and not uh, earthly leaders in their teaching. The teaching's great, but it needs to be focused on Christ. Amen? And so, first of all, and then uh, don't tolerate uh, this flagrant sin that happened to be going on in the church. And we see that in chapter 5, starting in chapter 5. And then the third one was the whole idea of bringing lawsuits against one another in chapter 6. And then also in chapter 6, the this uh, just... The culture there was so much into sexual immorality and physical immorality. And uh, Paul's like, hey, hey guys, you guys are separate now. This is different. We, we are in a new world, a new realm following Christ, so not indulging in those. And this chapter, starting in chapter 7, addresses the fifth of ten major issues in 1 Corinthians. And this one is about marriage and uh, singleness and, and divorce and getting married and, and all of those types of things. And we're going to be addressing those as we come through the this chapter. And uh, it, this chapter's got a kind of a constellation of matters that have a general principle behind all of it. And you may want to write this principle down, is stay where God has called you. Stay where God has called you. Paul is telling his readers here to stay in the condition that they are right now. Obviously, there's some exceptions that he lists along the way, but that's the major thought is stay put in your condition that you are now. Now, let's read the text and you'll see where we're going with this in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as a concession, not as a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, 
However, each man has his own gift from God, one this way and another that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Wow, what a great New Year's Eve section of Scripture. But the truth is, all Scripture is great, amen? And there's truth to this in the new year that we're all living. This section of Scripture hits every single one of us in this room. Either you're single or you're married, or for one person in this room, in this week alone, they'll be single and married. (laughs) And that person knows who she is. (laughs) Marriage is the greatest portrayal of something, picture of something, a picture of something holy, a perfect relationship between God and His people. We read that in our reading together in Ephesians chapter 5. Every Christian marriage is the portrayal or picture of this perfect, beautiful union, unity that we will have between Christ and His people. And some of you are going, hey, you know, don't look at each other right now, please. I'm not sure our marriage is that picture. Well, marriage is a beautiful gift from God, and if we focus on God and live for Him, our marriage, if we both do that, husband and wife, it will turn into that picture. Now, I want you to also picture this. In the book that is rarely read in churches for some fairly obvious reasons, The Song of Solomon, in chapter 4, yeah, everyone's going to go look at it. Like, I haven't read that in a while. Ooh, boy. But in chapter 4, starting in verse 12, going through verse 16, there's a part where it's talking about the bridegroom, and he's speaking to the bride, and he says, You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are like an orchard of of pomegranates with choice fruits. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowering water streaming down from Lebanon. It's this fruitful garden, this picture of marriage uh, that the husband sees in the wife, this, this multifaceted, fruitful garden. And that's this picture of marriage, this garden of Eden type of marriage. But the Garden of Eden is besieged in our culture, and it always has been. We should see marriage as a besieged city. It's under constant assault, marriage is, by our world, by the flesh, by the devil. Adam was commanded in his original command in Genesis 2, The Lord took man, put him in the garden to literally serve and protect it. The second verb, protect, was to guard, to stand watch over the garden. The idea of a watchman on the wall inevitably involved then danger and encroaching danger, encroaching danger. And who was that? That was the serpent. There's, we see what happened. There's a need for that constant vigilance because there's constant danger when it comes to marriage. Satan knows better than we do this very fact. 
the terrifying power of a godly marriage. Just like he knows better than we do, the terrifying power of a healthy church. And so Satan wants to assault both the family and the church continually. He, he knows how dangerous it is if you have a Christ-like, godly, loving husband serving and caring for his wife and a godly church-like wife submitting to her husband's leadership and together raising children in the Lord, Satan knows how terrifyingly damaging that is to his dark kingdom. What do we see in our culture today, everyone? We see marriage and family being attacked in every sort of way. Why? That's Satan's plan. To disunify and to destroy. And so he's going to assault marriage, and he was assaulting it there in Corinth. Corinth was this kind of like unholy Corinthian mass of people, of church, and we've been seeing it. The, the, the Roman, the Greco-Roman world was a mess when it came to physical relationships and marriage and all of this stuff. And, and then these people are coming to know the Lord, and they're bringing that mess into their relationship with the Lord and the church. They were just saved recently. There's still corruption, there's still struggles in their minds and their hearts and their practices. And Paul's saying, whoa, we need to clean this up and we need to live a different life. And that's why he says back in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. This call of sanctification to take our bodies and use them for the glory of God in every context. And in the context now in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Corinthian church was in danger, constant danger with sin. God was calling them to holiness. God calling them to perfect holiness in physical matters, either in holy celibacy, in the gift of singleness, or holy marriage in the gift of marriage. And these two things are God's provision for physical purity. And standing generations away from this writing, we understand that God's word is timeless and perfect. Amen? And when you read this, you go, wow. This is attacking what's happening even in our own world, in our own culture, in our own homes. We're the same people. We're not essentially different. And I tell people this all the time. We just have more technology to mess up ourselves faster. But our spirits are just as corrupt in the area of physical relationships and sexuality and all of that and we need help we need help we're in trouble in our earthly form in our non-christian form and the word of god comes to us amen god through the apostle paul 
plants the Corinthian church as a holy colony in the middle of a seething mass of immorality. Does this sound familiar? A holy colony in the seething mass of immorality. And that's what actually every church is. I say this all the time, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm just, I know we have to remember this. We are in enemy territory. Satan's territory is outside these, these doors. When we leave this assembly of believers worshiping together and we walk our separate ways out there, whose territory are we walking into? Satan's playground. And it doesn't take long to feel it, like as soon as you get out of the parking lot and get honked at and, you know, all this type of stuff. The church is a holy colony of heaven. Amen? We are called to be holy people surrounded by unholiness. And as holy people, we then become the light, the example, God's example of hope that there's a better way. And Paul gives a very clear description here, and we'll look at it more as we go along the next few weeks, of two incredible gifts in the midst of an unholy world. The gift of singleness, first of all. See, God has not left us as orphans here. He's given us gifts to provide for us. And in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, let's make sure we got this all straight here. This does not mean bumping into her in a crowded marketplace, like she's got cooties or something. It, but it's like Proverbs 6, where it talks about the man who goes after the neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. So it's that type of language it's pretty clear what he's talking about here. Paul is transitioning here in the first six chapters. He had been addressing topics uh, that he chose one after another. And then all of a sudden you see here in verse 1, concerning the matters which you wrote. Addressing things that they asked him about. It's like, dear Polly. Think about that for a moment. In the next number of chapters, he's going to say, now about about this, about that. That is him saying, I am now answering this other question. These topics are brought up to him and he's quoting them and saying them as that. And that's why you see in many of your translations quotes around that no one who touches her, uh, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That was the question, is this okay? And so it seems here that the the people in the church in Corinth are aware of this depravity of human nature, and especially in this area, advocating, a, and what they're doing is they're advocating a position of absolute celibacy for every Christian. Anyone, everyone that's a Christian, there's, there's, there's a group there obviously saying, okay, celibate, 
you're all not supposed to touch one another. And what you see here is a hint of Greek philosophical dualism that has entered into the teaching of this church. We're now people of the spirit, not of the body. And they're celebrating the spirit and the mind, and they're, they're denigrating the physical, what they would say, the physical carnal aspect. But the Bible never does that. In fact, Jesus was born what? Incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He took on, even after his resurrection, what did he take on? He took on an actual human body human resurrection. So the biblical view is not about denigrating the body and elevating the spirit. But they were like that, and they're saying essentially, well, now that we're people of the spirit, people of God, so we're done with anything physical, everyone should be like that. And that's kind of where they were at. Now, what's interesting is Paul doesn't just like, go right up and disagree with this up front saying it's wrong. He doesn't do that. He actually, in this chapter, is going to advocate very eloquently the value and the benefit of singleness in the Lord. Even in the section of Scripture that we were looking at there in verse 7, where does he say, what does he say? He says, I wish that all people were as I am, in other words, single at that time. But each person has his own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another gift. He's not refuting singleness like singleness is a bad idea. What he is setting up is that holy celibacy is a gift from God. And he will go and unfold that later in greater detail in verses 32 through 35 when we talk about that in a few weeks. We'll get to that. But there is a holy singleness that is a gift from God. But he throws some caveats in that right away. And and we're moved very quickly from verse 1, you know, into verse 2. Very quickly. He's saying if you don't have that gift of holy celibacy and singleness, you know, you're going to be living in danger physically. And so he goes to verse 2, and since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And this is actually very similar to a moment that Jesus spoke about marriage in Matthew 19. Jesus is teaching on marriage. He gives this incredible articulation of the theology of marriage in that Jesus answers totally in harmony with the theology of marriage and singleness that Paul is giving right here, Jesus says not everyone can accept that, being single, but those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. So others have made themselves eunuchs or renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. It's a theology. It's a clear theology of singleness. It is given to a a limited number of people who are capable of accepting it. Now, Paul elaborates on who it is that can accept that singleness. And we'll see that, but we're going to leave it right now with this. Single people 
are godly people. Single people that have no compulsion to get married are godly people. They're not under any physical pressure and they live their lives single like Paul did and they live their lives single in the service of the Lord and amen, that's awesome. That's great. And Paul says here that that's a good thing if you can do it. But he also says if you look at verses 8 and 9, he says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should get married, for it's very better to be married than to burn, burn with passion. So some of the Corinthians were saying a basically faulty theology of marriage and singleness, saying that, you know, hey, marriage is innately physical. And so it has this wickedness to it because anything that's physical is wicked. Paul actually writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he actually calls the forbidding of marriage the doctrine of demons. So who's right? And Paul highlights a few things here. He says singleness is an ideal. It's, this is a, a concession, not a command. I say this in verse 6. Alongside marriage, Paul views, yes, singleness as a gift. You know, verse 7, each has a, his own gift from God, one kind and one of another. And for, I think, many people, singleness is a calling. It's a calling. And I think this is very important to remember as well. Those who are currently single are, guess what? Currently called to be single. In this particular season, the call is to seek to live a biblically single life in anticipation of God's provision, whether it's singleness for the rest of your time here on earth or his provision of maybe marriage later. But the point is, is that where God has you now, live in it in its fullness and serve the Lord in it. Now, as a side note, this is one of the sections of scriptures that the Roman Catholic Church gets the ideas of, of nuns and priests from. And Paul recognizes here, actually, in this section that most church leaders are actually going to be what? Married. The Roman Catholic requirement of celibacy is a bad example because it's a church taking something that Paul biblically encouraged and transforms it into a requirement in order to actually protect its own interests. People don't realize this, but if you start digging into where the Roman Catholic Church started into the idea of having nuns and priests being celibate. It was about 300 years after uh, the resurrection of Christ, and it was actually in a response to nepotism in churches. It wasn't a theological response. They used chapter 7 as a way to deal with some nepotism issues. 
You can read all about it, just not here. And so what you have is damage then done as a result of an anti-biblical requirement. Men and women who God has not gifted or called to be celibate by not just the Roman Catholic Church, there's other churches that do this. They're being required to be celibate when they're not called to be celibate. And the result is awful. Tremendous failures and sin. You see, Paul knows, he even says it here in this section of Scripture, that singleness upon those that are not called that way can affect you negatively at the deepest level because of that idea of the passions that burn deep inside of us, uh, relational, emotional, physical. Uh, when it's unmet, unmet, it can be tormenting to people. And I think it's important for all of us to remember in light of what's going on here that sin, Satan and sin is working underneath all of this. Sin has so twisted our culture's idea of singleness that for many unmarried people it seems impossible to live without being married. And on the other hand, sin has also twisted marriage so badly in our culture that it seems impossible to live within marriage for many married people. Satan has done what? He has attacked both. And practically speaking, we should celebrate the lives of those who are single. Right? Celebrate. One of the things that I do very purposely in church here and everywhere I've been is that in my understanding of the scripture, that is why we do everything together, single, married, everything, as one body. Because we all have different gifts and we're all from different backgrounds and different things and some are single, some are married and it's awful, I think it's awful to separate people based off of that. Instead, we should enjoy being together. And that's what I think you see biblically. Not said. Verse 2, like I said, he goes into the idea of the gift of marriage. And I, it's very clear that verse 2 makes it clear that God is, uh, he's one, he's, his plan is one plan, one, marry, one man married to one woman. Uh, that's the plan. That's the only plan. The husband and wife should never abuse the, the privilege of the physical love within the normal part of marriage. You know, it says there that the wife's body belongs to the husband, but it also says what? I love it when people take that out and say, oh, look, look, churches are all about guys. I'm like, read the next sentence that says the exact same thing for the guy. 
husband's body to the wife. So that means 100% both directions. The physical relationship, that love is a beautiful tool to, to build with. It's not a weapon to fight with. Paul's making it very clear to refuse each other in that way is to commit a robbery. Actually, you can look at that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. And it's inviting Satan to tempt the marriage partners to seek satisfaction elsewhere. And in all things, and we need to remember this, everyone, in all things, the spiritual needs to govern the physical as we said earlier, what are our bodies? They're temples of the Holy Spirit. They're God's temples. Husband and wife, yes, they can abstain in that physical relationship for a while, but it, even Paul gives a reason why in order to devote their full interest to prayer and fasting. You don't use that, though, as an excuse for a prolonged separation. I, I'm sorry, honey, I'm going to be gone for the next seven years. Prayer and fasting, you know. That's not what he's saying. Obviously, he says that that's not even a, a long time. Paul's encouraging the Christian marriage partners to be in tune with each other, to know what's going on. And ultimately, as we will see more and more of over the next few weeks, there's this idea in marriage of a selfless service to each other in that relation, marriage relationship intended to spur both the man and the woman on in their devotion to the Lord. The greater end of physical pleasure in a marital relationship is to live a life that is pleasing to God. That's the aim of marriage. God calls us to be kind and gracious sanctifying agents in the lives of our spouses. You know, it's about love. It's about true love. It's not about lust. And I, I, I know everyone in here probably understands the difference between lust and love. You know, if you are in lust and get married, that marriage is doomed if you do not actually love one another. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Four Loves. He says, lust is going after the body. Love is going after the person. If an individual is passionate about someone just for their body, that means they don't love the person. They just want the body. The Bible then shows us that the physical relationship is a beautiful gift given to humanity by God to be enjoyed as a blessing within the context of a faithful marriage relationship between a husband and a wife that as they grow together, they grow into a beautiful picture of Christ and his church as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5. 
Now let's take away some applications of this and just for a few moments here and, we'll, and then we'll be done. I've said it, I think, about 17 times and so this is the 18th time this morning. We should see both singleness and marriage as a gift from God. Okay? God is good. Amen? He has not left us as orphans in this area. And here on the marriage side, most of these verses are actually dealing with that in this section. You have to get very specific. And God is saying, your spouse is a gift of God to you. And the more that you cherish that gift, the more you think about that, the more you express that to each other, the happier and more joyful you will be in marriage. And that marriage over time will grow and grow and grow and grow. As you are focusing on God, that will grow into a amazing picture of Christ in his church the more you express thankfulness in marriage the sweeter your union will be and as someone who is single you get the opportunity to express the joy of that singleness and service to the Lord and being an op uh, an awesome picture of what God can do in the life of anyone single or married it's awesome everyone gets to be a great great picture of what the Lord can do and as I finish this message today the one thing that I do every single time before I get up here to speak is I always pray that God would bring non-Christians here to hear the gospel. And you go with this scripture, you go, well, this seems predominantly written to the church about the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. And they are each of them gifts. But may I share with you today that there is a far greater gift in that than the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe you walked in here today and you've walked in here for weeks or years and you've, you've heard a sermon that starts to unpackage over the, for the next few weeks, marriage and singleness, and you maybe what that actually could do is unpack some realization in your life that, man, there's some corruption going on in my heart in this area. And we have to understand, like I said earlier, that the subset of that problem is really a larger problem. The larger problem is sin in general. And there is only one provision for sin. Jesus Christ. As Savior. God sent him to die for sinners like you and me. We're all corrupt not just in this area here, but in every area. And so I plead with you, if you are sitting there today and you are going, yeah, you know what, I don't, I don't think I'm saved. I don't think Jesus is the Lord of my heart. 
of my life. Then don't leave this place without talking to me or Daniel or Ron and praying with people about that. God sent Jesus, his only son, to die on the cross as the substitute, the substitute for sinners like you and me so that we then can spend eternity starting now, holy and blameless, and then eventually looking at God face to face, which is going to be pretty awesome. And so I encourage you today as we start into this new year, when we start looking again at the idea of following Jesus in a fallen world, and we understand that one of the major attacks of Satan in the fallen world is in the arid in the area of of marriage and singleness and physical relationships and all of that junk that can boil out of that to remember that Jesus takes care of the sin problem. Nothing else can. Nothing else can. And so whether you are single or married, live for the Lord. Amen? Let's pray.